Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome again to another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Today's question is, what's so bad about censorship? So Steve, what is so bad about censorship? Well, I think that what we're going to discuss today is going to come across a little bit controversial. And so strap in your seatbelts because we're going to talk about the beauty or the value, the glory, the merit of censorship. One of the characters that Dr. Rushdoony loved to critique was a man named Marquis de Sade. And he presented this idea that there should be no censorship of any content in writing or public behavior, that everything, every sexual act, every kind of speech, everything should be legitimate and uncensored. And his premise behind that was the idea that all things are equal and that there is no system of law, there's no system of morality that distinguishes pornography from children's books, that all things should be equal. And so what we're going to talk about today, the question behind the question is perhaps this Marquis de Sade philosophy has made its way and infiltrated our Christian views of media and politics and even the church. And what we need today is to come down with the hammer of censorship and begin taking some of the philosophy of the world out from the church, out from the family, out from our media. These barnacles on the ship of the uh, church and salvation need to be removed. And the process we are going to use is censorship. So... If you think about it, there's plenty of things that the Bible talks about in terms of prohibiting. And if you posit the idea that nothing should be censored, that our First Amendment rights in America to say and do certain things is unencumbered by anything, then what we're really saying is that there are areas that God does not reign and rule over. And I remember once as I was teaching a co-op class to a bunch of homeschoolers, I had just showed them a video about the persecution of Christians in communist China and how the Christians were arrested, that their speech was censored. And I then asked the question, is it wrong for Christians to censor things like homosexual speech or, or and we were talking about if you're putting in you owned a Christian newspaper or you just owned a newspaper would you accept ads from people who were looking to engage in homosexual acts and these young people's the, the view was well of course you would have to because of free speech and I pointed out that by making that assessment what they were doing was denying the sovereignty of God to decide what's right and what's wrong. And the element here is, of course, as all things at its root, theological. What we tolerate as a society, what we allow to be published 
uh, in our public sphere, uh, whether it's newspapers, what we call in our constitution, the press, whether it's on television, whether it's in our private businesses or in our families, what we tolerate is a reflection of the religious and life view that we have. And so when we talk about censorship, this is an act of discernment. The censorship is not so much a political act as it is a theological act. A truly Christian people cannot tolerate a rival system inside of a Christian worldview. And so this was also true in the very early days of our Christian Republic. America was not founded to be a tolerant nation willing to imbibe all of the various worldviews and mix them together, but rather the protections enumerated in the Constitution and in our founding principles were meant to protect the Christian religion that created those uh, various protections to flourish and to prosper. And that without proper censorship, the very foundations will be taken away, and there will be no rights and privileges for any people. So one of the things that has permeated, I would say, the last 50 years is elevating things like pluralism and toleration as if they are good things. And Dr. Rusjuni points out in his introduction to the Institutes of Biblical Law that there really can't be tolerance in a law system for another religion. And the minority opinion tends to push toleration as a way in which to gain a foothold. Yet when that perspective gains dominance, all bets are off. And we see that today when we're, whether it's talking about the qualifications for someone to serve as a Supreme Court justice, if he or she holds to a Christian world and life view. And so without realizing it, many people fall into the idea that we should be tolerant of other religions. We should be a pluralistic nation and we can all work together in peace, except conflicting worldviews do not produce peace. That's right. Well, and the idea of tolerance itself contradicts the very values of Christian identity. Uh, my friend, Pastor Michael Denna, who's a Reformed pastor out in Colorado, used to quote in his sermons rather often that tolerance is not a fruit of the Spirit. And I think that's important for us to remember that things that are opposite of tolerance are like the kindness of telling somebody the truth. And so since we're not supposed to tolerate falsehood, uh, the kind thing to do is to call out a falsehood and to protect real truth through the act of censorship. Now, censorship itself is portrayed as a, a boogeyman of somehow the government coming in and putting duct tape over the mouth of reporters or preventing newspapers from running articles that they would like. But in fact, censorship is much more prevalent in the Christian idea uh, than that. Censorship, as we understand it, is calling out evil for evil and refusing to allow evil to have a seat at the table of truth. And as a Christian, our call is to remove all forms of evil from our speech, conduct, character, and from all public forms of thought. So when we divorce anything from God's law, we're going to end up with problems, if not sooner than later. So today's big issue is the censorship of Christian or conservative views on social media. 
But if you look at it from the point of view of those who control these platforms have a world and life view, they have a religion. And guess what? They're not tolerating an opposing religion. Could some of the problem we have brought about on ourselves as a church is that early on when contrary views were coming in that were contrary to the law of God, instead of censoring them, we decided that we were going to be magnanimous and let people voice their opinions. And this idea of voicing of opinions uh, is truly an American ideal if it's understood correctly. So the idea of free speech, for example, was birthed in our constitution uh, out of centuries of religious conflict between Catholics and Protestants and amongst Protestants themselves. The, the struggle between the Puritans and the Anglicans or between the Anabaptists and the Continental Reformers. There was a desire among the American founders to allow dissension in political and religious thought. But it was understood that inside of there, there were certain parameters. And you can even see this in the life of Calvin. While we expect that there could be various readings of the scripture, we did not tolerate heterodox or heretical ideas. The, the great example, of course, in Geneva is where uh, John Calvin is much maligned for his treatment of Severtus, this heretic who comes from town to town attempting to teach false doctrines about the Godhead and salvation and all kinds of strange heresies. There was, in Geneva, a freedom of thought. Uh, there was a freedom of speech. Different pastors and, and preachers could talk about different views on the Lord's Supper, different views on church government. Calvin himself could hold to a different opinion than the city council that employed him. And there was a free discussion, a free speech that was happening in this early Swiss canton. But what we did not tolerate were things that were dangerous and imperiling the souls of believers. When Severtus comes in and begins spouting heresy that would lead people to damnation, censorship is required. Censorship uh, was a part of Christian charity. It protected that man who was teaching heresy and those who might be influenced by that. Censorship in this sense is preventing the damage of the spiritual nature in the same way that laws against violence or laws against theft protect physical property or personal, uh, personal life and, and health. And so censorship is recognizing that spiritual truths and spiritual realities have greater consequences than even guns or knives against our bodies and sickness and all of that fun stuff. So today we have this idea that Christianity is just a personal thing. And yet, the early church knew to differentiate between what we would consider the essentials of the faith or that which we must be dogmatic about and that which was open to interpretation in terms of how to be most faithful to the scripture. It was never that you were supposed to produce an interpretation and not even consider what God's word said on the subject. Right. And I think that we, in a sense, all recognize that a religious culture always practices censorship. The problem is that the predominant religious culture in America in the year 2020 is not biblical Christianity. The predominant culture is secular humanism. It is the 
victory of humanist thought over Christian principles. And so today, it's not that we live in a free society where there is no censorship or that Christians have become much more tolerant and have allowed secularists a place at the table. The actual reverse has happened. Because Christians have refused to be discerning, because our churches have been silent when people cast doubt on the God's call to obey the Sabbath law, because people have refused to hear the church when it says marriage is between a man and a woman for life, because the people in the church have refused to practice censorship over their own children in their education, in their public spheres of work and all of the various political policies we've tolerated, the result has not been a free society where all ideas are equally tolerated. The result has been a totalitarianism from a different religion, so much that talking about uh, Christopher Columbus is now a hate crime. Having a statue of Christopher Columbus makes you an enemy of this modern secular religion. So what do they do? They practice, as any good discerning religion does, censorship. And the statues coming down is censorship of religious thought. The refusal to teach everything from the Mayflower Compact to the Constitution to the founding of our American principles based on Christian heritage, those are all being censored and not welcomed at the table. And so this is the inverse and opposite reaction because the religion dominating our culture today is the inverse and opposite of biblical Christianity. And so people have this view that we can just appeal to other people's sense of what's right, saying it's not right that Christians are being singled out in terms of meeting in churches during this closure from the pandemic, but it's totally okay for people to riot. You see, that is consistent with the religion that prevails. And to act as though we're just going to appeal to this common sense of what's right and what's wrong. You can only do that if you're appealing to the God of the Bible, who everybody knows what God says is right. Either there are those by grace who receive it willingly and those who are in rebellion who fight against it. But this idea that we can somehow or rather have any kind of positive outcome if God's law isn't being followed, is delusional. And so rather than say, well, we've got to get these people to stop censoring us, the better point of view is we've got to work to reconstruct society that is going to take God's word seriously and recognize no speech, no action is legitimate if it goes contrary to God's word. That's right. And I think Christians here need to recognize that the response to censorship is not to give up or to create our own separate and distinct platforms, but to push back. Dr. Greg Bonson, when he talked about arguing with the humanist, when he went through his work on apologetics, he would cite the reformed principle of pushing the antithesis, this idea that we are called to answer, as St. Peter teaches, the attacks of the world. And so when our values are under attack, the Christian response is not toleration, but rather to offer a reasonable answer to what's happening. And this is where I think the politics of 2020 have become more powerful than the church of 2020.
it's a shame to the church when non-believers like Ben Shapiro make a more ardent stand for our conservative history than most American pastors. The thing that I think we need to recognize is that our viewpoint is not just one religious idea amongst the pantheon of religious ideas, but the biblical foundations that we teach in our churches every week are the only way of prosperity for any nation, that everything else will fail save it has a Christian foundation. Now, that's true in two senses. One, something that does not have the blessing of God is destined to fail. But second, in a very real and practical sense, the very mechanisms that have allowed capitalism or democracy or republic form of government, the mechanisms that have allowed American prosperity, success, that have allowed for cultural, cultural uh, uh, uplifting of a great number of people are based in those same biblical principles. And so rather than allowing the world to run over us, we have to push the antithesis. And this is by calling out censorship when it's being used by the left, by enforcing our own censorship, by refusing to tolerate the various deeds of darkness that the left or the non-believer wants to bring to the front of our attention. And you see this played out often, especially when it comes to, for example, the confirmation of nominees to either the Supreme Court or other courts. What seems to be the gotcha question is, will you abide by the court's precedence or will you abide by your deeply held religious beliefs? And so often you will hear people who profess their Christian faith to say, I am, you know, I am this or that, this denomination or that denomination. However, I recognize that the Supreme Court's decisions of the past should be upheld. And so what they're really saying is that they're giving way to the dominant, prevailing, accepted, official religion of the United States. In thinking about this, why would anybody want to approve, no matter what the person thought, someone saying, I will not govern, I will not make decisions based on my most deeply held beliefs? If you don't do it on your most deeply held beliefs, then you're pretty much worthless, don't you think? That's right. I mean, you are worthless if you aren't acting in a sense of integrity. This is what's so difficult about these Supreme Court nominations, uh, how disingenuous people are about the reality of what's going on. Now, there was a, a quote I read about the process of, of reading or choosing Supreme Court justices that I thought was telling and really shows how our entire process become overly politicized, that people are chosen based on their pet political issues rather than on the rule of law. In an ideal world, there would be no, there, not even an ideal world, <laughs> in, in a constitutional republic, according to how our framers imagined, what somebody's political affiliation is, whether they're Democratic, Republican, whatever political party that's ever existed or shall exist, that shouldn't matter for the Supreme Court. And the fact that it does, that we're looking at how they'll vote on rulings for particular issues or their personal life, the fact that we're looking for our pet issues inside the lives of the Supreme Court justices means that we've really lost the point of what the Supreme Court was. The Supreme Court was not supposed to be a group of activists 
who were interpreting the political machinations of our day, but rather they were supposed to appeal to a higher sense of law and an eternal sense of truth. They were supposed to look at whatever piece of legislation came, that came from Congress and say, is this good law? Is this in, in terms of our constitution and our Christian foundations, is this correct? And instead it's been transformed into being the tool of activism that each party can use to force down their various views. Exactly. And you know, this past week, for those who might be listening well into the future, the big debate is who's going to replace Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died a couple of weeks ago, right before an election. And now it's who gets to place their person into this slot. And you even hear Christians, sadly, who are talking about what a great woman this woman was. Well, this woman, if my Bible is true, now knows the truth on how wrong she has been in her decisions in terms of things like favoring homosexuals or approving the slaughter of unborn children. So how can anybody who believes God's word honestly think that there's anything to be said, may she rest in peace? If Ruth Bader Ginsburg is resting in peace, then is the Bible true at all? Right. The scriptural command is that we will know know people by their fruit. And to lie about the legacy of a woman who is directly responsible for the genocide of the unborn in our age, everything that we're experiencing in our age, as far as the curses or the, the danger and perils of our culture can be traced back to the evils of this woman and her philosophy. And so it is completely a lie for Christians to in any way try to honor her legacy uh, as though it was something beneficial to Christ's kingdom. And again, it's this compartmentalization that Christians try to do that sometimes people can do one thing in their personal life or one thing in their political life, and that there's some honor in doing those things. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no better than uh, Pontius Pilate or the Diocletians of Christian history. We don't remember them fondly. Instead, we name dogs and other creatures after them so that we remember that they are experiencing the wrath and damnation of our Lord. And another interesting fact is that when the dominant religion wants to discredit someone who's been nominated, who does not toe the line to their religious dogmas, what they bring up are things that good Christians should find appalling. So if somebody had a past where the accusation was on the last judicial nominee who went through it, that he did something when he was in high school and it was, you know, he took advantage of someone. Well, that's not something that actually goes against humanistic points of view. You brought up the Marquis de Sade at the beginning of this discussion. Marquis de Sade thought everything was fine. So isn't it interesting that they tried to... They try to pull the emotional or theological strings of people who call themselves Christians and say, this man's not qualified. Look at the terrible things he did back when he was in high school. Yet many of those same people who were criticizing him were known for their extramarital affairs and the fact that they don't hold to the idea that you need to be faithful. 
So you have these people who are not tolerant in terms of challenging their point of view, but they're very tolerant in terms of whether or not adultery is okay, whether or not homosexuality is okay. So I don't think people realize how much the conservative Christians are played precisely because they don't realize this as a religious conflict. They think it's a political conflict. And the, the key word there is the sense of hypocrisy that exists amongst the humanists who will um, on one hand say all behavior is as you described acceptable um, and then hold us to a completely different standard. But I think there's also another piece there and not only do they call out people for various evils and if a man is an adulterer or if he is a homosexual those things ought to be called out and printed in the media but there is a sense in which the the criticism of the potential nominees that that president trump might put forward the criticism is kind of laughable in that one of the criticisms that i've read is that she's a roman catholic and that means that she'd be pro-life and what a horror that would be or that she's a mother and that she has children and so she's biased against those who don't have children. Or that she said something like that her job is to further the kingdom of God and that means that she is basically like the Ayatollah of Iran or the Taliban of Afghanistan because she wants to further her religious principles as a Supreme Court justice. But the reality is none of us are able to separate our individual actions. What we do day to day is not separated from what we believe. The folks on the left have inside their actions a overarching idea. And for the humanist, that idea is destruction of godly culture, the launching us into chaos and total anarchy. But they don't reveal it. But the criticisms of the potential justices will reveal where Christians maybe should be heading. If they criticize us for being family people, people who cherish having children, being mothers, then perhaps they recognize that as a great threat to their future objectives. And so rather than self-censoring and refusing to be who we are, to be in people of integrity, recognizing that our gifts of femininity, of being family people are great strengths for the kingdom of God. We recognize that these are the things that frighten the left and we should truly embrace them rather than hide them. Exactly. And, you know, the, the new term, which I'm not sure how recent it is, but you certainly wouldn't have found this in textbooks 25 years ago, this whole idea of cancel culture and privilege, it really is asking Censor yourself. If you think you want to say something, just don't say it, and then life can be better for you. So how amazing is it that years and years of censorship of the Christian world and life view have been prevalent? Now we've moved to the realm where people are expected and often do censor their own ideas because they're concerned what the ramifications will be if they express them. Right. And too often, those who are writers, pastors, those who are leaders, those who are teachers and educators, they use this sense of uh, portraying self-censorship as some type of wisdom of, you know, we're going to reach more people if we don't offend people or be able to be a better witness to the world because we're going to not touch on the issues that might offend other people. The reality is 
self-censorship, and this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but self-censorship because of fear of criticism is nothing more than cowardice. And you can see this happening all throughout the political sphere. There is a certain cowardice amongst political figures who refuse to stand on God's word. They're afraid to say homosexuality is a sin because they're afraid. And so they self-censor in response to that. You see it, self-censorship in the pulpit, where men are afraid to take stands on political issues or hot-button issues or issues of actual substance because their cowardice is determining what they are allowed to say. And so the sinister type of censorship is not so much that the United States government is going to come into the pulpits and say, here's a list of things you can and cannot say. The most sinister censorship is going to be the pastor who is so afraid of his own congregation or those in his community who are not even part of his congregation, that he's not being faithful to what God calls him to preach to these people. And when you have a congregation or a group of Christians in a church who don't know history, who don't know how to discern the philosophy of humanism from the philosophy that's consistent with biblical Christianity, they're so easily manipulated. They're so manipulated that they don't even consider censoring what their children learn at school. Now, interestingly enough, coronavirus and the whole situation has shed light on the fact of what's being taught in schools when parents are asked to sign releases saying they will not be in the same room with their children while their children are being instructed or that something that hangs on the wall in a child's bedroom is enough to get that child suspended. See, this is censorship. And people think if we just say, look how bad this is, that for those who hold to that world in life view, they're saying their version of hallelujah. See, we're being consistent. And isn't it a shame, Steve, that the enemies of God are sometimes way more consistent than professing Christians. Well, and there's, there is a, a sense in which censorship will come from the enemy of God. There was a, a case many years ago when the dating practices of the students at Bob Jones University, you know, they have different expectations than general culture, and they still do have different expectations. But the way censorship works inside Christian institutions from the outside is going to be a lot like what happened there, where the government will threaten to remove tax-exempt status unless their political policies inside the university match what's on the outside. And unfortunately, I think that many Christian institutions, uh, even the most established of us today, save Grove City and Hillsdale, that the schools have become so intertwined with the federal government's grant program, with the state government's free money programs, that the idea of censorship will be overwhelming to them because they have to comply in order to receive government benefits. And so what we can expect, as you describe a kind of conservative clamping down on Christians, is that Christians will not censor because there's some edict from the top, but Christians will self-censor out of a fear that they might lose whatever piece of prosperity they get from tax dollars, and that we'll see that those institutions that were trusted with raising the next generation of our children have 
over the last few years, self-censored to a point that they don't even teach what the Bible faithfully called them to teach. Now, some people will say that, you know, we have wolves in sheep's clothing, and I believe that's definitely true. But the sad part is when you rely on experts as a Christian, what the pastor says, what the dean says of your Christian college or your Christian school, and you don't even have the discernment to say, no, that doesn't sound right to me. Doesn't the Bible say this? We've gotten to a point where in, in many Christian circles, they'll say we have to defer to the professional class of Christians to tell us what we should or shouldn't do. And one of the best ways to safeguard the purity of the faith is by families having this role that says we won't let other points of view take hold because by doing so, we would be dishonoring God. Right. And there is really, we talked about censorship here at the very beginning, there is a need for censorship. The censorship that we currently experience is the censorship of the cross out of classrooms, of prayer out of classrooms in public spaces, the censorship of any expression of patriotism out of the public sphere, uh, so much that uh, the idea of having the Ten Commandments in front of a, a public space is offensive, so much that having the idea of a cross on public space is offensive, and these things have all been censored out. But in response, the left has put forward its own symbols of faith here in Santa Clara County, which is not too far from San Francisco, there's an entire month where every county office, whether they be Department of Education or the Department of Health, raises up a rainbow flag in solidarity with the LGBTQ community. And those are the new symbols of their new faith and religion. The goal of their censorship was to remove any visual cues or symbols of a common heritage and to replace them with a new cue of a new culture and a new religion. And so we as Christians who want to fight back in sense of, of reestablishing Christian censorship must refuse to tolerate the encroachment of public spaces by these symbols of tolerance or leftism or humanism. We have to say that these things are offensive to us and demand that even in the political arena, our Christian values are true, not just for those who believe in Christ, but are true for everybody who has a heartbeat, that all who are made in the image of God must obey his law and must come under his standards. And the most obvious way to combat that in terms of the family is to remove their children from religious schools, the schools of humanism, which is what the state schools are. It constantly amazes me that Christian schools, faithful Christian schools, struggle when they should be bursting at the seams, wondering how are we going to get more space to accommodate all the people who want what we have to offer. And part of that is that people are under the illusion, or I should say delusion, that public education is free. Well, if anybody wants to know how free public education is, look at the devastation in major cities as a result of the riots that have been taking place in the past three or four months. You see, that's the outworking 
of the religious education that has been prevalent in state schools. And so do they hate the middle class? Absolutely. Why? They've been told to hate the middle class. You see, because the only true people to follow would be these sports figures or these politicians who promise all sorts of things, but never have any intention of living by their own rules. What makes Christianity so unique, whether you are the upper class, the middle class, the lower class, God's law applies to everyone. And the problem isn't your checkbook or your bank account or your assets. The problem is sin. And so the message of the gospel goes through all classes socioeconomically and really doesn't change. That's right. And there's a, a great quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, which uh, is worth commending to read to everybody. But there's, on censorship, Chesterton says, we do not need a censorship of the press. We have a censorship by the press. And Dr. Rushduni commenting on this type of censorship has a little report in his Our Threatened Freedom series, where he talks about how the accusation against Christians is that we try to censor people from reading certain books. And the case is also is often made that people like Eagle Forum or way back when with the moral majority that we were trying to, to burn books and keep people from reading books. But what Andrea just pointed out is that the narrowing of the American mind is not a result of Christian education, but the shrinking down, the censorship of information has been the direct goal and result of public education. It is because of public government religion, because of public schools, that we read less about who George Washington is, less about who John Adams is. It's because of the narrowing of public education that we have not burned the books, but we have taught the kids not to read them. We have taught them not how to even read them. And so while it's true that, that some Christians discourage children from reading Harry Potter and some Christians discourage people from reading, uh, you know, the, the devil's cookbook or different things like that. The true censorship uh, of our generation has come from librarians and school boards and other leaders who have deemed two things, deemed books of our age to be one of two things, either too conservative, therefore children shouldn't read them, know anything about them and discourage their even presence in our schools or libraries. They're either too conservative or the second is they're too Christian. They have too much religious content relating to the Christian foundations of our country. And so what government education has done is it's chopped off 2,000 years of history from our children and has narrowed their viewpoint, not by burning books, but by censorship so that the publicly educated child, even though he spends the age three to 18 or sometimes even to the age of 24 in a public university or public school, that their censorship that they've experienced has been by the religion of humanism, that they're uneducated, they're not knowledgeable of the larger world or the world's history. And quite frankly, two hours on a Sunday, one hour on a Wednesday night isn't enough to have a lasting effect. You know, it's interesting, the Ivy League 
professors and lawyers who want to regulate things like homeschooling and Christian schooling recognize the truth of the Bible, unfortunately, that a lot of people don't. They recognize the truism that train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's why they want children as early as possible. That's why we have compulsory education laws. That's why there are truancy laws. They know that if you make a hole in that child's head and put a funnel and you funnel in certain ideas, those children will spout out those ideas because no other ideas have been allowed. So when you have people who are teaching their children the Christian faith, but they're doing more than teaching them the Christian faith, they're teaching them how humanism is wrong is a lie. So there are way more Christian homeschool and Christian day school graduates who know more about what's wrong with evolution than any public school student knows about what's wrong about creation because they don't even want to go there in state schools. No, they've just got to push their religious agenda. Whereas the Christian, because he or she is interested in discipling the nations has to understand these erroneous views in order to combat them. So in actual fact, if we're going to look at toleration in a good sense, it's that the Christian, in an effort to evangelize and participate in someone coming to faith, is willing to not discount them because they may be of a, re a different religious point of view, but they evangelize, they share the good news. Humanism has no good news. And what we're seeing today being played out in the social arena is just what Dr. Rushduni predicted, that humanism will fail, but as it fails, it's going to be painful and ugly. That's right. Well, here at, at Canterbury, where I'm the, the headmaster, I often talk with parents about the importance of a Christian education. And one of the data points, I think, is that number you talked about, you know, this idea of, is Sunday school enough? So if you think about how much Sunday school somebody might go through in a year, so say you have 45 to an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of Sunday school every week, then you're only getting a maximum of about 40 hours of Sunday school each year, which for our kids from kindergarten to fifth grade, that's about 240 hours of religious education. Now that's a good start, but think about that also in terms of you as a, a Christian. That's probably about the same that you're getting from the pulpit if your education is limited to just Sunday services. Now, I know that it's not just a matter of hour for hour, but if you were to compare how much your child is learning in Sunday school by the hour to how much your child might learn in a public school, and you were to do a similar calculation, so kindergarten, they spend a couple hours a day per school, they would spend about 1,100 hours that first year in a school, 1,100 hours learning about their letters, their numbers, science, all that fun stuff. Take that over the period of their early education years. So here we go from kindergarten to fifth grade. 1,100 hours a year over that six years is almost 10,000 hours of education. Now, 10,000 hours is a lot of time for your child to be under Caesar, learning to be <laughs> like the rest of the world. 
But the really striking thing is if you compare that 10,000 hours against the 240 hours of Sunday school, what's going to win? Now, the, the other part of that that's interesting is all of us as Christian educators want our kids to be masters of whatever they study. Now, we want them to be masters of the piano, masters in phonics, masters in science, whatever they apply themselves to. We want them to become masters of it. And we happen to think that if you want to be a concert pianist, you should do 10,000 hours of practice before you're worthy to be called a proper pianist. But yet most Christians, as they send their kids to the government schools, are giving 10,000 hours of practice in being a humanist. And the result is, by the time they reach seventh grade, our children are masters at thinking and acting and behaving like a humanist so much that by the time they finish high school, the great majority of these publicly educated children fall away from the faith. It's not because the facts were fought and our facts lost. It's because the habits that they learned from their foundations in public school were to think and to behave like a humanist. And so when they became adults, they followed the habits they learned in those 10,000 hours. Exactly. And what else is funny, and I don't know if you can back this up from your experience, but let's just say Sunday school would have tremendous merit. My experience is when it comes to teaching children in Sunday school, it's usually strong-arming someone to say yes. It has nothing to do with their qualifications other than, will you do this with our five-year-olds? Will you do this with the eight-year-olds? And so the Sunday school teachers are often people who mean well, but really aren't teachers. I remember when I first was converted, my husband and I were attending an evangelical free church, and um, I was asked to teach the three and four-year-olds Sunday school. And I was so excited. I was like, wow, and now I'm going to be able to share my faith with these children and whatever. And uh, another seasoned woman came to me and said, um, what is your plan? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about this and we're going to do that. And she said, no, 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 no. You just have to learn one thing. You have to learn how to say, be quiet, because that's pretty much what you'll be doing during Sunday school, because they'll be running around and doing all sorts of things. So even the Sunday school environment is often dominated by people who mean well, but don't really know how to impart the faith. It comes back to the choices that parents are going to make. And this is how this, of course, relates to censorship. Throughout the, throughout the day, the public school teacher or the political leader, they're going to censor the ideas that they think are harmful, the things that are bad, the bad books, the bad laws, the bad policies, uh, the bad words. All those things are going to be censored based on your perspective. Now, as a Christian, uh, it's very easy for us to develop a biblical view of truth, goodness, and beauty, and then therefore to censor out pornography and explicit materials and things that take the name of the Lord in vain and things that go against Christian values and Christian goals. But we must take our discernment into every area of life. We must take it into politics. We must take it into our job. We must take it into education. We must take it into our marriage. And we say, we refuse to tolerate anything that is contrary to the crown rights of Jesus Christ. And we refuse to 
allow the left or the humanist or the non-Christian to take ground here because we're afraid that they will win or we're afraid that they will judge us. Because the truth is, the things that we judge as good and the things that we censor out as bad, that's true for you and it's true for your neighbor. If we really want our neighbor to prosper, we'll practice a good censorship and refuse to allow them to wallow in despair and sickness. Instead, we'll censor out the things that can harm them and allow them to embrace and experience the things that are good for them. Yes. You mentioned a book that I was going to recommend, but you beat me to it. Dr. Rush Dooney's Our Threatened Freedom. And it's kind of funny to call it a book because really what it is is a compilation of transcriptions of radio addresses he gave. And they're short and sweet, but boy, are they potent. And I think it's a good introduction if you have not been exposed to this way of thinking in terms of the, the root of freedom, the root of liberty being a biblical application in all areas of thought. Not only can you get it in book form, but the original lectures are available at the Chalcedon website as well. So if you're prone to listening, you could hear them kind of the way he gave them. And you'll hear by the production values that these were done many, many years ago. But it's amazing how prophetic he was in his assessment of what it would look like as humanism progressed through the culture. And I think you'll be surprised as to saying, wait a minute, I thought this man passed away 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, he did. But it's so relevant what he's saying. And for those who listened way back then, they began the process of Christian reconstruction. They removed their children or never put their children in public schools. They gave them a Christian education and they started looking at what they would do for the kingdom. So I would hope that there would be a time where more people responded, I'm doing what I'm doing in my profession precisely to further the kingdom of God. That's right. The greatest threat to our Christian heritage today is not that we are being censored by some foreign government or even by our own government. The greatest threat is that Christians, like those listening, will not heed the warning, the prophetic warning of Dr. Rushduni, that our threatened freedom comes from Christians who refuse to take up the mantle of a Christian future. There's a, a great movie uh, called National Treasure uh, with Nicolas Cage, where they talk about the, how far the government goes to protect our founding documents, you know, all the security involved around the Declaration of Independence, right? how terrible it would be if something like this founding document was taken and destroyed and the things it represented were melted away. But that's exactly what's happened with a culture that is completely illiterate when it comes to the freedom, the power, and the glory that comes from a people who know and apply the Bible. Christians today practice a self-censorship when we do not bring the Bible to bear in our public life. The greatest threat, again, of censorship is those who refuse to proclaim and therefore, through their cowardice, censor God's word for this time. Couldn't say it any better than that. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so 
at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we're always eager to hear your comments and your thoughts. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.